situation or medical emergency during a service. Um, that doesn't happen very often, but occasionally when you put two or 300 people together for a while that something's gonna happen. And when that happens, it's always interesting to watch, um, not celebrating it, but just interesting to watch the dynamics of a situation like that. There's almost, almost always a kind soul sitting near the person in distress who begins to help them uh, and, and, and see what's going on with them. Usually, between the services we have, there's usually someone who's trained, either a nurse or doctor, or someone who has been trained medically um, and knows what they're doing, who realizes what's going on, and, and they begin to give attention to that person. They jump into the situation and assist however they can, advising and caring for them. Um, last year, we were given, a, as part of a grant, many of the churches, including us, were given defibrillators, and I haven't had a chance to use it. So every time I see one of those situations, I'm just ready to do that old TV thing. Uh, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to go for you. So I'm, I've got your back, too. Uh, but thankfully, there are medically trained people who protect you from me. And so, uh, um, because I've seen it on TV, so I ought to be able to do it, right? So, uh, um, but it's always always interesting to watch those situations as they unfold because you're always thankful if you're having that crisis, if you're the person having the medical issue and you're thankful to be in the right place at the right time and with the right people. And that combination of things makes all the difference in your life sometimes, being around the, the right people in the right place at the right time. Because if you're not around the right people or in the right place or happen to be the wrong time, um, that can sometimes be a matter of life and death. And so that situation is what we want to talk about today is, is really the right people, uh, the right place, and the right time. Because as we continue in this whole idea of more and unpacking this idea that God has equipped us and God is calling us to be involved in aligning our lives um, with what he is trying to do, God has a history in big and little ways of using the right people in the right places and the right times uh, that work with him and navigate with him and, and walk with him. And, and people are blessed um, and God is honored through that. And so um, let's just review here real quickly. I, I've said these words every week just because I want you to learn them and, and know them and, and we're running out of time to say them. So I will say them one more time. Uh, we began this series by looking at this calling, this primary calling that goes out to every one of you who names the name of Jesus um, and we use those three words, the be and the do and the go, and that every one of us are called to be disciples who continue, who are committed, excuse me, to helping other people become disciples wherever you may go, wherever you may be, your work, your home, your life. That's just the foundational commitment of your life as a, as a Christian, that I want to be a disciple. I'm, I'm learning, I'm growing. Just what does Jesus call me to do in my character, in my life? What does he call me to be? What am I to do? I'm, I'm the overall arching theme of my life ought to be how can I help other people connect with the Lord through my life? And then where am I at? Um, at work, at home, those places. And then two weeks ago, we began to look that on top of that primary calling, there is a unique calling that God mixes into this as well. So on the foundation of your primary calling is this unique calling where you are called uniquely to play that out in some shape or fashion. That God gifts you and he has equipped you and he has worked through the story of your life and, and all of those things that you are uniquely wired and created by God to play out that foundational commitment of a, being a disciple who's a disciple maker wherever you are um, in the life and in the world around you. And the beauty of it is that every one of us in this room are wired, created, uh, gifted in different ways uh, 
um, and there's beauty in that. We're not all the same, and that's a good thing. And so today we look at this whole idea that, that I am uniquely made to do good works and deeds. And so we want to kind of think about that by looking at the story of Nehemiah here in just a moment. So if you do have a Bible, I want to invite you to go back to your Old Testament, go back to the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 and 2. We're going to look at some verses there in just a moment. But I want to use this because some of you wonder why this is up here probably. Um, oftentimes, I, would, I would guess I would use the, this illustration to kind of talk about what we've been talking about. Um, I am not a great baker, so I probably will botch this up. And if I, if I mess it up, you can correct me here. But uh, if I was to most, a lot of recipes, if I'm going to make a dessert or I'm going to make something, uh, the most important ingredient is, is sugar, right? right? More sugar, the better, right? No, some of you say that's wrong. But sugar is usually a key ingredient in, in things like that. And so I'm going to add my, my, my sugar and my water and my flour and my, my water and those things like that. And I'm going to add those basic ingredients that are, go into a lot of things that you and and I would make. And this is kind of represents our kind of primary calling that this is our beginning point, right? This is where it all starts. And as I mix those things together, it gives me the beginning of something really good. But if I was to go and add in some vanilla to that and, and, um, and I was to add in some chocolate chips, and again, the more chocolate chips, the better, right? And so uh, I was adding the chocolate chips and, and maybe what would I be making out of something like that? Give me a good guess. Cookies, very good. I could see it. I could read your lips. Cookies, all right, very good. It's cookies, right? And, and, but you could, you could change these things out, have this foundation and add other things to it and make something very different. And so as we talk about that primary calling of be, go, and do, or be, do, and go, um, this kind of represents the whole idea of a foundational idea. But then God begins to mix in into your life unique things, unique flavors, unique uh, talents and abilities that God allows you to play out. And, and through your life, as you continue to live that out, um, God blesses and he uses that. And so... Um, Last week we introduced this acronym, but I want to kind of unpack it and, and show it as, as you look at the unique part of this in Nehemiah's life. Um, we introduced this acronym last week, I guess it's an acronym, an abbreviation, whatever it is, or spiritual GPS, right? We talked about this and I gave you these words last week just to think about, but this whole idea of a spiritual GPS that kind of guides us in life. And that um, while we are all called to be disciples, committed to making other disciples wherever we are, uh, the way that is played out in your life may look different in your life than it does in mine because of that GPS. Um, and we said last week that, that GPS stands for three words. It stands for your gifts and your passions and your story. And if you were to go back and look at many of the texts in Scripture where people are called by God to do something, to serve Him in some way, sometimes in big dramatic ways, sometimes as we're going to see today, in just the normal circumstances of life, um, I think God uses a lot of those things, things like this, of our gifts and our passions and our story to, uh, to lead us into places where we can serve, and sometimes maybe we can serve in ways that others may not be as gifted or passionate about. And so I want to read the first chapter of Nehemiah, uh, and end of chapter 2. It's only like 12, 13 verses, so don't panic. Um, but I want to read through that, and I want to then come back and look at Nehemiah and how God used his gifts and his passions, his burdens, you might say, and his story uh, to put Nehemiah in a situation where he would become the right person in the right place at the right time. 
And so as we do that, I hope that you will um, see that. So look for those things as we read this passage. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this. In the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now there's a lot of words that have no idea. You're like, what in the world are you talking about? He's giving us some context to what's going on here, right? Now, Nehemiah is a Jewish man. Susa is a long, long ways from Jerusalem or any place in Israel. And that indicates to us that this is a time of history where because of Israel's hardness of heart, their rebellious, their idolatry, um, they have been allowed to be taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. And then eventually the, 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 um, the Persian Empire took them over. And so you're in this time called the exile of Israel. They've been taken 800, 1,000 miles away to a foreign land. They're living in this foreign land. They have integrated themselves. This is similar to the time like people like Daniel, the lions then, and all those stories, though that's the same time period in history. And so Nehemiah is a Jewish man living for 20 years now. They've been in exile, it seems, um, far away in the citadel of Susa. And so this is the story in verse 2 that builds on that, okay? Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. In other words, not everybody got taken away. Some people stayed back in, in, in Israel. And he also he asked about Jerusalem. And so if you're away from, if you move away from here and, and you hear news, you want to know what's going on back at home. And that's what he asked them about. Verse 3 says, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. In other words, it's going hard for them. It's difficult. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In other words, Jerusalem is vulnerable because without a city, uh, without a wall, excuse me, a city becomes very vulnerable uh, to all kinds of threats and attacks. And so the city is in ruins in a lot of ways. And so in verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. So again, begin to listen. What is it Nehemiah is known for? Rebuilding a wall. But where did his, um, how did he get there? How did he get back to it? It starts with some passions and some burdens that he has in his life. He hears this news and he sits down and he weeps. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And so remember the instruction you gave to your servant Mo Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, which is exactly what has happened to Israel. But... In verse 9, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And so what's he doing? He's, he's weeping, he's fasting, he's praying, he's meditating upon scripture. He's just allowing God's words and God's promises to kind of 
um, ruminate, that's a word I can use, ruminate in his mind and in his heart and his soul as he meditates upon them, asking God to be faithful to what he said he would do. Um, in verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hands. So Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering, revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence. And then he uses that little word, this man. Who's he talking about? Well, then he, the next verse, next phrase, and that end of verse 11 tells us who he's talking about. Well, I was the cupbearer to the king. And so we find out that Nehemiah's role in his captivity is to be the guy who brings the king his wine. He would deliver his glass, his goblet to him throughout the day whenever he was uh, thirsted, thirst, when he was thirsty for that. Um, and, and so Nehemiah, uh, we begin to think about, well, how does Nehemiah come to be the right person in the right place at the right time? And you begin to see how God has been working um, in his life. In his story, you see some of his passions that are being laid out here. I'm sure other people uh, around, around Nehemiah heard the same news that Jerusalem's a wreck, right? The walls are knocked down, the gates are burned. It's just a very vulnerable uh, city right now. But Nehemiah embraces that passion and that burden uh, in a unique way. And then chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this. We fast forward a time in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before because if you were the servant of the king and you came in unhappy, uh, not delighted to be there, that's a good reason for the king to execute you because who else should you be happy to be with than the king, right? He had a big ego. And so if you came in sad or distraught, that was an insult to him. So Nehemiah had never gone in sad before that way. In verse 2, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? And when, are, and when you are not ill, this can be nothing but sadness of hearts and I was very much afraid because servants don't ask thing of ki things of kings especially cupbearers right he's just there to deliver cups he's not there to give counsel or to ask things he's not an equal with the king he's very much his servant his slave and so I was very much afraid but I said to the king may the king live forever notice honor his respect he shows him why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. So if you ever think, is it biblical for me to shoot those little, I'm in a moment of crisis, Lord help me in those little prayers. That's exactly what he does here. He's standing before the king. He knows this is his one opportunity to ask be able to make a difference in this situation. And so he prays. He doesn't leave and pray for an hour. He just quick, Lord, help me here. Help this to go well. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now we'll stop reading. I would encourage you to go back and read the next few chapters of this book um, on your own time. Because what happens is that 
God answers Nehemiah's prayer, and the king does grant his request. And he asks, not only grants his request to go back, but he says, well, what do you need if you're going to go back and rebuild your city? And Nehemiah begins to show his thoughtfulness and his skill by having clear outlines of this is what I need. These are the trees, this is the wood, the timber I need. Here's the stones I need. Here's what I need. I need guards. I need protection. I need all these things. So Nehemiah shows a lot of things about him. So how do you see Nehemiah's GPS working in this situation, in this story, and in the stories that come in Nehemiah? Let's think about his gifts for a moment. As you read this book, you find that Nehemiah is an organizer. He's a leader. He's a visionary. He's all of these things that it was necessary to lead a group of people 800 miles to a land that's been decimated, whose enemies have no desire to see Jerusalem come back to be any kind of power at all. But he comes with all the supplies, all the people he needs, everything necessary to be the right person, the right place, the right time um, to make that difference. And by the time you get to the end of the book, the walls have been rebuilt, the, the people have been organized, they have uh, faced many threats, many uh, hostilities against them, and the wall is rebuilt. And so Nehemiah's gifting led into him being able to do this. But think about his passions, though. Lots of people maybe had the gifts of being able to organize and, and do those things well. But think of his passion. Did you see that passion come through? His passions in his tears, his passions in his broken heart over the news that his city, the city that God loved, the city that God had, had put his name upon, was now in ruins. And so while, while Nehemiah was certainly sad for himself, he also cared a great deal about the glory of the Lord. That God, this isn't honoring you to have the, the city that has your name on it in ruins. And so, Father, he hurt for the things that hurt God. There's this burden for this broken thing in his world. There's this hurt that he has, this passion that he has to see God's glory, to see God's people back in a thriving and healthy place again. And so there's his passions. And you think of his story. Um, Again, this is 20 years into an exile. We don't know how long Nehemiah has served here, um, but for some time we can assume. But think of the story that God had been working in Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah had no idea that he would eventually come to this place. But he had this idea because all of his life, from the time he was taken captive and taken to a foreign land and put in the king's service, there was a lot of hurt, a lot of sadness, a lot of brokenness, a lot of... I'm a slave, I'm not a free man anymore. Just the pain and anguish that has gone a part of his story. But now as he stands in the presence of the king, as his servant, as his slave, he recognizes that through this story, God has put me in a place where I can speak into this situation. I can make this, the scary request that the king would help us to rebuild our walls. And so his story, while you would have looked at Nehemiah's story before this time and thought, He's just another slave in another foreign land, but yet God was working through his story, through painful things and uncertain things and, and just um, hopeless days. But God was working through his story to bring him to a place where he could be the right person in the right place at the right time. And so Nehemiah's story, I think, illustrates, and you can go through many biblical characters calling stories and find where God has gifted them he has, um, they have, or he has given them a burden, a passion for some broken kingdom thing that God cares about too. 
and the story that God has used to put them in that place where they will be ready to serve him. And while your story and my story may not be as dramatic as being the slave of a king and being um, leading a group of people hundreds of miles to rebuild the walls of a famous city, I do believe that just as Nehemiah was the right person in the right place at the right time, that God works in your life and in my life in similar ways. Again, the stories may not be dramatic. They may not write books about it. But your life is being shaped by your gifts and your passions and your story as well, if you're paying attention. And so that's what I want to encourage you with. So let's think about that. How do we then experience some of what Nehemiah did there with being the right person in the right place at the right time? So let's think about that. Let's just think of those three phrases. Let's think about what it means to be the right person. What does it mean to be the right person well, we have looked at some of this already, but to be the right person certainly implies that I am a disciple of Jesus and I'm a child of God and I'm, I'm seeking to, to grow my heart and my character in the ways and the life of Jesus. Um, but I, I just thought there's lots of verses that we could look at here, but I came up with four of them <clears throat> that I want you to think about. I'm going to drink some of our cookie water here just a second. Um, um, I want you to think about this idea, four verses that I chose that I think are, are, are verses that, as you reflect upon them, they kind of put us in a place to be the right person that God wants us to be. Um, the first is this, um, we need to be a Luke 7.47 kind of person. A Luke 7.47 person, and I put the verse up here for you. Um, this comes at the end of a situation from Jesus' life in which Jesus is invited into a Pharisee's home. The Pharisee is named Simon. Um, and then in the course of this meal where they're eating, this sinful woman, this woman with a bad reputation, with a bad past, comes in weeping, crying, falls at Jesus' feet. Um, uh, her tears fall on his, on his feet. Um, uh, certain versions of this story that she wipes his feet with her, with her hair. It's just a very remorseful, broken woman who comes seeking forgiveness and out of gratitude for the kindness of Jesus. Um, and Simon is just put, put aside. He, he's just so disgusted by this whole thing. Why would this Jesus, this prophet, allow this kind of woman to hang out with him? Why would he do that? And Jesus says to Simon these words at the end of that interaction. He says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. And then Jesus makes this connection. I think this is where the phrase I'd like for you to latch on to. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And the flip side of that is true. Whoever loves much probably understands that they have been forgiven of much. And so I would just ask you to think about um, how quickly, how, how fully do you really latch on to, I am a forgiven child of God. How much of God's forgiveness do you hold on to or do you find yourself a little bit more like Simon um, who really doesn't see himself in need of a lot of forgiveness, but boy, those other people, they sure do. You see, the more that we embrace the grace and the mercy and the kindness of the Lord, the more I think our hearts begin to, we become the right kind of people because our hearts are full of love. Now, I want to show you a, a news clip from this week. Um, th this week was, last few weeks have been all about the coronavirus, so I hope you haven't sh shaken any hands here today because we're just going to do the Vulcan 
live long and prosper as we leave here today. Um, but uh, but as uh, all the warnings this week, many of them were about not touching your face, right? So I just did it. So but don't touch your face. But there were a number of medical people and, and government people that the Washington Post uh, put together this little video montage of of. Um, that shows the hypocrisy that oftentimes we all struggle with. So as you watch them, I'm not being down on them. I'm just ready that we all feel this, right? Take a look at this, if you would, please. Start working on not touching your face because one main way viruses spread is when you touch your own mouth, nose, or eyes. And of course, enhance cleaning of surfaces. Well, we're always saying the common sense of washing your hands, not touching your face. We're looking at every way individuals come into the country, not just through the... Through One of the key parts to preventing transmission is washing your hands and not touching your face. You know, there's a, there's a lot of folks that are trying to ask themselves, do I need a mask? I think these are very important things. Working hard, not to touch your face. That everyone would have to fill out that would go directly to CDC with that I've been looking around the room here. I can't tell you the number of you who've put your hands to your face in the last uh, 20 minutes or half an hour. I want to know how many of them are from... Hear some of the things about washing your hands and not taking, touching your mouth and your, your nose and your eyes. And Can you tell me why it took five days to test the patient in The value of hand washing and using sanitizing gels to, if you get the virus on your hands, eliminate it before it finds a way. Don't touch your face. I, my, my kids are so sick and tired of me saying that they scratch their face. Don't touch your face. That's how I love that last one that my boss was just telling me not to touch my face, right? And so it's, I just saw that. I thought, man, that's, that's us, right? It's easy to be Simon and say, hey, you people just get your act together. When you just look at that, you just think there's just our broken nature. If we were to just translate this to this sermon now. Um, our broken nature I'm a broken, sinful human being. You are a broken, sinful human being. And the more that I understand that it is only because of God's grace and mercy that I am forgiven, then the more I'm able to love the Lord and the more love I'm going to show to other people. And so I just would encourage us to think about if I'm going to be the right person, I need to be a Luke 7:47 kind of person. A few others, Micah 6, 8, a Micah 6, 8 kind of person. When I know that I'm forgiven and I'm only by his mercy that I am what I am. The Micah 6, 8 gives us beautiful guidance. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And so again, that love and that grace, that mercy thing leads us into that whole idea of just living and treating people fairly and treating people better. Loving mercy, loving mercy and walking humbly. God, I need you. I need you. I need you. How about this Matthew 6.33 person? I'm touching my face again, sorry. Uh, Matthew 6.33 person, uh, don't shake my hand today, I could be deathly ill. Uh, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. I'm gonna put my hands behind my back and see if I can not touch my face the rest of the sermon. Um, but again, the seek first part of this, right? What is the Lord looking for? The right kind of person who tends to, to show up and to make a difference in this world is a kingdom-seeking person. It's a person who's seeking kingdom things first. Just like Nehemiah, right? He's got his own thing going on. But what does his heart break for? His heart breaks because the kingdom that he loves, the kingdom of the heavenly father that he loves, is in disarray, and that breaks his heart. And so he seeks first, not his own glory, 
but God's glory. And finally, a 1 Peter 4.10 person where Peter would write that each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others uh, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Zach, I have an itch on my eyebrow. Could you come up here and scratch that for me? Okay, I'm going to scratch that. But, uh, but again, using your gifts. And, and I love what Peter says. He echoes what, uh, what Paul writes about in like 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Romans uh, 12, um, 1 Corinthians, various places. The Bible in many places, it begins to lift, list various gifts and, and things that you have. Um, you don't have all of them, but you have one, two, three, four of them. You have gifts in your life. Um, I, I would encourage you, there are a number of things online, a number of things. If you want to go deeper into this, call me. I, didn't, I couldn't figure out how to do this in a sermon well, but, um, but I, I just think if, as we begin to explore and we think about, well, how does this go deeper with me? In fact, here's what we can do. The next couple of weeks and Wednesday nights, we're unpacking this material and we're a couple of weeks behind it. And so we're going to go deeper into this. I know uh, the Sunday school class at nine o'clock that meets uh, in room 101 is also going into this in a deeper way. To be able to unpack that and think, well, what do these gifts look like? What does it mean to have them? Um, one example, though, in, in Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 13, Paul makes this statement that God has given gifts to his church and he talks about apostles and prophets and evangelists and, and shepherds and teachers. And, and, um, and Alan Hirsch uh, is, a, is a smart guy who's, who kind of took those names and he just kind of broke them into character traits that every good church needs to be able to, to live and, and function. And he's not, when he uses the word that you may have apostolic gifts, he's not saying it's your Peter. He's not saying you're going to start a new church, or a new, replacing the church as an apostle. But this said apostolic trait of being someone who tends to look to expand or extend things, or you are systematized, or you're an entrepreneur, or you're an overcomer, or you can establish or design or your strategic thinking. Those kinds of traits, maybe that's who you are. And if that's who you are, you should look to use that. Or prophetic, maybe you're a person who's really good at illuminating things or proclaiming things or pioneering things or challenging and correcting things. And on and on his list goes of character traits in that. Maybe you're evangelistic. Maybe that attitude or that trait in your life, you're a good recruiter. You seek people out. You're enthusiastic. You're a big fan. You're, you're a living invitation into things. And maybe that's a character trait in your life. Maybe you're a shepherd. You love to nurture and protect. You're operational. You like to develop. You can empathize with people well. Um, you're a caretaker. You are calm. You are supporting. Those kinds of things maybe make you more of a shepherding kind of personality. Maybe you're a teacher. You're really good at explaining and enlightening things for people. You grasp and apply truth. You can transfer knowledge. You can show and demonstrate. Other, on and on it goes. But just an example of different traits that maybe live inside of you. And as you pursue them, and as you think about them, what does that look like for you then to say, I want to be a 1 Peter 4.10 who, who is, as we said last week, was prayerfully, thoughtfully uh, studying my life, looking, okay, I've got this story of my life, that, uh, these interactions that show some of these traits in my life, and I should embrace those and use those gifts the best that I can. So that's the right person, and quickly, just the right place. Um, and I would just simply say this, um, sometimes... We're waiting for that magical moment, right? If I'm going to go through my life and someday there's going to be that special moment when I'm going to make my mark on the world. And um, you can call that maybe like a specialist kind of lifestyle or a specialist calling. And so there are people who have that, that they just have one calling and that's the rest of their life. 
Um, I, I was at a conference a few weeks ago and they told the story of William Wilberforce back in England. And he was a man that from a young age was just captured with the idea of ridding England of slavery. And he spent his entire life on that task that, that consumed everything about him. And so that was his one calling and everything about his life consumed that. But probably for a lot of us, we're not going to have that one thing. And so maybe it's a, a matter of, of small missions that broke down into our life, uh, months, years, or, or phases of our life, where there's just this general calling where we're living out what it means to be a disciple, helping other people to know the Lord through that. I just touched my face again. Um, and, uh, um, and so, but I, I just hope that you think the right place doesn't, isn't out there somewhere. The right place is everywhere a disciple of Jesus who is committed to making disciples wherever they are goes. Every place takes on significance. If you want to be the right person in the right place, that means your workplace or your school or your home uh, or your neighborhood. All of those places take on significance. And there are people in those environments who are looking for someone to care for them, love them, shepherd them, guide them, um, lift them, whatever it may be. There are people in those environments and you can be the right person in the right place. And then that finally answers the last thing is the right time. When is the time to start this? Yesterday, right? Yesterday, it's not a thing to wait 10 years thinking, well, I hope this magical moment, it shows itself. If you remember the Marvel movies, um, Thor had his mighty hammer and there's a scene in one of the Marvel movies where everybody else is trying to lift his magic hammer and no one else can because Thor is the only guy with the character and might and strength to do that, except for Captain America. But, uh, but he's able to do that, but nobody else can. And, and so we shouldn't apply this whole calling thing to think, well, there's, one, there's a few special people in the world that can lift the hammer, that can do the special things. All of us are called to be the right people in the right places, because the places that you and I go to are unique to us in many ways and at the right times. And that time is maybe today. That time is every moment. And so we must wake every morning looking to do this. I told you last month I was going to show you this, this chart every month. And so I've got January, I've got February, here's March. Here's what this looks like again. It's that whole blessing thing, right? It's how do I bless someone? I wake up in the morning and I ask God, like Nehemiah, what can I do today? Who can I bless today? Open my eyes, open my life, help me to see. And you begin to listen throughout your day as people talk and they share interactions. You're going to see things, hear things, notice things if you're paying attention to them. Uh, using meal times to share and eat. And, and there's no better fellowship moments than eating, right? And so uh, eating, coffee, moments of cookies, Cookies, how about that? Cookies together. Um, those are great moments. And then you serve those people. As God lays those people in your heart, you serve them, you know, praying for opportunities to just share your story that, hey, I know this is hard or this is going on in your life and this is how the Lord has helped me. Um, I'd like to talk to you about him. And so this whole idea of being the right person, the right place at the right time, um, I hope that you and I will embrace and, and grow into and, and commit ourselves to studying the Lord, studying following Jesus, studying our, even ourselves and saying, God, how do I fit into this? Prayerfully, thoughtfully, diligently. And so I am, you are uniquely made to do good works and deeds in the world around you. And so go and be that right person in the right place at the right time for someone around you this week.